0: Good morning. My name's Jason Schubert. I'm another one of the elders here at Harbor. I'm glad to be with you on this Lord's Day. Uh, we uh, on Sunday mornings preach through whole books of the Bible, um, and if uh, well, a chapter or so at a time, not a whole book every morning. Uh, but if you look at the table of contents at the front of your uh, of your Bible, you'll see there's uh, there's a lot of different books of the Bible. Um, But it's important for us to understand that as we look at these separate books written by different authors at different time periods, that there's ultimately one one author, one story, one hero, and that is our God. It's this great unfolding uh, history. Of God's work of rescue and restoration, and all that He is doing to redeem a people for Himself in Jesus, uh, we've been in uh, the book of Second uh, of Samuel, which is in the Old Testament, and we've what we've seen is that it's important for us to understand uh, what the book of Second Samuel is telling us about God's chosen King, about David. Because the Old Testament gives us the worldview by which we understand the New Testament. And in the New Testament, as we learn a lot about Jesus, we're going to see uh, over and over that he's the, the New and the Old Testament are trying to connect Jesus to David, to God's chosen king, the fulfillment of the work that he's doing. Uh, as we've been in... Uh, Second Samuel. One of the things that's come really to the forefront of our uh, our understanding over the past several weeks is the sin of David and the suffering that that has brought. And as we've looked at this book, we've we've tried to understand how does the book of Second Samuel point us and prepare our hearts to follow God's King and to anticipate and be loyal to Him and His kingdom. Uh, But as we're going to see in the chapter this week, uh, the suffering of God's King, the suffering that we see that David encountering, if we fail to understand that properly, if we interpret wrongly the suffering of the King, then we cannot rightly follow God's King. If we interpret the suffering of the King wrongly, we will find ourselves completely outside of God's kingdom. So as we look in this chapter, chapter 16 of the book of uh, of 2 Samuel this morning, we want to grow in our understanding to make sure that we are rightly interpreting and understanding the suffering of God's king, both David and the greater Son of David, who is to come, Jesus. So if you would, turn with me. The book of 2 Samuel, we're in chapter 16 this morning. If you want to follow along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats, this is on page 267. We're going to look at the whole chapter together this morning. Remember where we left off last week? Absalom, David's son, uh, has proclaimed and declared himself king as he's seeking to gain control of the nation and of Jerusalem. And David has begun to flee out of Jerusalem. Last week we saw David encountering many people who were loyal to him and loyal to God's kingdom. Uh, we're going to encounter some different people uh, this week. So please follow along with me there in your copy of God's Word, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 16 of Second Samuel. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a 100 bunches of raisins, a 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. When king David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei the son of Gera, And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at the servants of King David and all the people. And all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shemai said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. Yahweh has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And Yahweh has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because Yahweh has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse for Yahweh has told him to. It may be that Yahweh will look on the wrong done to me and that Yahweh will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shemai went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust and the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, "Long live the king! Long live the king!" And Absalom said to Hushai, "Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go out? Why did you not go with your friend?" And Hushai said to Absalom, "'No, for whom Yahweh and this people and all the men of Israel has chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you.' Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, "'Give your counsel. What shall we do?' Ahithophel said to Absalom, "'Go into your father's concubines.'" whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went in to his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one counseled, one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Let's pray. Our God, we praise You, we thank You uh, for graciously uh, revealing Yourself to us in Your Word. Um, but to rightly understand Your Word, we, we need You. To rightly understand uh, your and interpret Your revelation and creation, uh, we need You. To rightly understand and interpret the suffering of our King, we need You. Uh, We pray, Holy Spirit, that this morning you would open up our eyes to behold what you have for us in your word, that we would interpret it, we understand rightly who we are and who Jesus is. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Kids, this morning, uh, what we're going to look at is uh, a few different people's interpretations of the suffering of the King. And so uh, what I'd like for you to do, if you want to keep notes, is uh, there's going to be some people who wrongly interpret David's suffering. I want you to listen to two ways, one or two ways that you can can listen that that they wrongly interpret David's suffering. And I want you to, for David, listen to one or two ways that you can write down that, that David, how he understands or interprets his suffering. And then lastly, when we look at Jesus, can you listen for one or two ways that, uh, that Jesus understands his suffering, okay? Uh, so the, the wrong interpreters and understandings of the king's suffering, David's understanding of the king's suffering, and Jesus' understanding of the king's suffering. Um, so uh, as we're digging into this, uh, we're trying to, to understand rightly and interpret the suffering of the king. And as we first come into this passage, we find and encounter two different people that David meets on his way out of Jerusalem, down from the Mount of Olives, who have particular interpretations and understandings of David the king's suffering. What it means, why he's going through it. Notice first, the one that we encounter is Zeba. Remember, Ziba used to be the the servant of Saul, uh, who then when David showed great kindness to Mephibosheth, Ziba was then told to take care of all the lands of Saul that David had entrusted and given back to Mephibosheth. And notice what Ziba says here about uh, the understanding that Mephibosheth has about David's suffering. In verse 3, he says, And where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. One of the things we'll find out later is Ziba is actually here being deceitful. He's lying. We'll meet Mephibosheth later, who, remember, he was, he was crippled and lame in his feet. He couldn't move on, on his own. Well, we'll find out he was just left in, uh, in Jerusalem, but we'll touch base on that uh, later. But notice what, through the mouth of Zeba, what he's communicating Mephibosheth's understanding of the suffering is that David is wrongly king. The suffering that David is going through is in fact a rejection, of David as king. And what it will mean is that now is time for him to become king. The line of Saul should never have ended its reign. Mephibosheth is a descendant of Saul. Remember, Mephibosheth's son was Jonathan, the heir to the throne. And so this interpretation is that the suffering of God's king means that he's been rejected by God. David never was and is not the rightful king. Notice it's not just Mephibosheth through the mouth of Ziba that has this interpretation and understanding of the king's suffering. But look at the next guy that we encounter, Shimei, who again notice is another descendant and relative of Saul. Both of these we'll see wrong interpretations of the suffering are coming from those who are descendants from Saul. It tells us in verse 5, we encounter a man of the family of Saul whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, and he came and he cursed continually. Notice what he says in verse 7. Shimei says as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. Yahweh has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And Yahweh has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. As Shemai looks at the suffering of the king, his interpretation is, is that David has wrongly made himself king. In fact, he's gone about it by force. Saul was the rightful king. David is the usurper of the throne. And he, at least... Shemmai is saying, You killed Ishbosheth, Saul's other son, who was king before you after Saul died. You, David, killed Abner. The only reason you are king in Israel now is because of your rebellion. Your rebellion against the rightful king. You have made yourself king, and God now is avenging these wrongful deaths on you. You are a man of blood, and the sign of this suffering that you are experiencing is, again, evidence that you are not the rightful king. God has taken this kingship that you've claimed for yourself, and He's given it away. He's given it to your son, Absalom. Uh, As... David is, is fleeing here. Um, uh, in the, the book of Psalms, Psalm 3, we see uh, there is the, that psalm there was written during this time when David was fleeing. Uh, these uh, titles and italics at the top of your psalms are uh, actually uh, part of the original uh, manuscripts that we, that we have and help give us the context by which to help us interpret and understand what's going on. Notice what what David tells us in this psalm as he's fleeing in verse 1 and 2. O Yahweh, how many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Notice. Siri, I guess that was an amen from Siri there. <laughs> so David here is saying there is no salvation for him in God. That's what he's hearing proclaimed, not just through the mouth of Zeba from Mephibosheth, not just through Shemai. But multiple people in Israel who are not uh, giving their loyalty to David are looking at his suffering, looking at his fleeing, and is saying, this is God's judgment on you. There is no salvation for you, David, and this suffering that you are going through is evidence and proof of that. You see... Zeba, Shemmai, this multitude of the enemies of David, their interpretation of the suffering of the king, they say what it means is that God has rejected His king. The suffering of God's king means rejection. Is that true? Is that the right understanding? Because if we get it wrong... If we wrongly interpret and wrongly understand the suffering of God's king, for these guys, they're giving their allegiance to another because they say David has been rejected. If we don't interpret it rightly, we will find ourselves potentially in opposition to our God and to his king if God's king has not been rejected. Let's see. What is David's understanding of what is going on in this suffering? Look in verse 10, what David says. Abishai wants to go over and take off uh, uh, Shimei's head. Remember, this is right in character with, uh, with Abishai. Remember, this is the guy before who said with one thrust, he could take the spear and go completely through Saul and stab him into the ground. He's really confident. He's a very vengeful guy. Uh, but notice what, what David says. What shall I have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because Yahweh has said to him, Curse David, then who shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all of his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone, let him curse, for Yahweh has told him to. David, David recognizes that there might be something in fact, there is something in this curse and in the words of Shimei that he needs to hear. Is David a man of blood? He is. For the reason Shimei understands it? No. David did not have any part to play in the death of Saul. David did not take the kingdom by force. David did not make himself king God made David king and he was the rightful king but David is a man of blood not for Ishbosheth not for Abner but for Uriah the Hittite and for the many that David gave their lives up to cover up his sin this this suffering in fact does stem from David being a man of blood but It's not rejection. Notice what, as David continues to go on, notice what he says in verse 12. It may be that Yahweh will look on the wrong done to me and that Yahweh will repay me with good for his cursing today. David is is recognizing that that the way that, that Shimei and, and what Zeba communicated that Mephibosheth was responding, to, uh, how he was responding, that this is wrong. Wrong done to David. Wrong done against David. And David has a hope. A hope that God will repay him good for this wrong that is being done to him. You see, David is is understanding this, that God is at work in this, but that God has a greater purpose in this discipline that he's bringing to David's life. That that David is looking and seeing that this doesn't mean rejection, but God is still at work in my life and he may yet still have good to do for me. In fact, uh, we see, we could say, well, why would David be uh, the, the proper interpreter? Sure, he's going to want to twist and, and, and turn it that way to make it more pro-David. But notice what the, the author of this, uh, this book points us to, that David is in fact interpreting it rightly. Uh, look at verses 15 down through 23. Uh, when uh, Ahithophel comes and he gives this counsel to Absalom, Notice what he says in verse 21. Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house of Israel. And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. This, This here isn't just something that Ahithophel came up with on his own. Do you remember hearing... Nathan prophesied that this is, in fact, what would happen back in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12. When David was confronted with his sin by Nathan, as God sent uh, Nathan to speak to David, this is what Nathan told, uh, told to David. In verse 9 of chapter 12, Why have you despised the word of Yahweh to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says Yahweh, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before Israel and before the son. Here, we're being directed. The, the, the author here is bringing up this account of what Ahithophel is counseling so that we make the connection and tie it back to what Nathan has already said. The word of God through his prophet so that we understand why David is suffering. It's not because he's been rejected by God but it's because God is disciplining him. In fact, David here is is taking in the promises that God gave him all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you remember what God said to him there, beginning in verse 11, he said, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your forefathers, I will raise up your offspring after you and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before Me. Your throne shall be established forever. Here, God has communicated His covenant promises to David that I will not reject you. You may sin, but your sin will not destroy My promises and My purposes, not just to work within you, David, but from you to bring the heir of all things, from you to bring the Savior and the Redeemer of the world. I rejected Saul. I will not reject you, but I will discipline you, and I will discipline your sons when you stray against me, because I'm committed to my promises. Even as we saw uh, Absalom, even though he's the son of David, we'll find out later uh, in, as it uh, comes up in uh, in 1 Kings, that the... The real heir of whom the line's going to come through is going to be Solomon. See, everyone is, around David is misunderstanding and misinterpreting his suffering. But what we see David here is he's rooting his understanding of the suffering that he's going through in the revelation of God, in the words and the promises of his God. In fact, back over in Psalm 3, we see David saying this in response to what his enemies are saying. They say there is no salvation for him in God. But notice what David says at the end of Psalm 3. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing beyond your people. In fact, even before that, in verse 3, David, in the midst of his of his fleeing, in the midst of what these people are yelling and screaming at him in the curses. He says, they are saying there's no salvation for me and God, but you, oh Yahweh, are a shield about me. You are my glory. You're the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to Yahweh and he answered me. Does God answer one that he has rejected? No. He answers his son. He answers those that he's committed to. He answers those in whom He is at work in their lives and their heart to discipline and shape them. Here we see David finding strength and being refreshed in the Lord. The Psalms give us insight in that, but there's hints of this in 2 Samuel 16 as well. Look at the end of, uh, or look at verse 14. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived, weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. Verse Read it sounds like maybe he was just thirsty. He rested, got across the the river, drank some water. Do you remember there's been other times where we've encountered language like this, but worded it just slightly different. It said David refreshed himself in the Lord, or Jonathan refreshed and strengthened David in the Lord. Here, what we see David doing is finding strength, finding refreshment, finding nourishment, not rejection. What we're beginning to see is that this suffering, this discipline that the Lord is bringing upon David is having a work in his heart. He's directing and pointing and moving the heart and the dependency of David away from himself to hope and rest in the God who spoke and said to David when he confessed his sin, I have sinned against Yahweh. And what God spoke to him back through the mouth of Nathan the prophet says, and God has taken away your sin. You see, actually what we're seeing here is not rejection, but the suffering of the king here confirms to us the promises of God. It confirms to us that David is in fact his king because God is doing exactly what he promised to do. Because it's going to be through the line of David that Jesus, David's greater heir, comes. Brings up a good thought. What about the suffering of Jesus? How does Jesus understand his suffering? What about the the suffering of the interpretation of those who are around him? How do they interpret the suffering of God's King? You flip over to the New Testament, the book of Matthew gives us an historical account of the life and teachings of Jesus. He recounts Jesus' teaching to His disciples as Jesus talks about His suffering and His rejection. And this is what Jesus said to His followers. From that time on, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, "Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you." But he turned to Peter and said, "Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here, notice, Jesus is speaking about the suffering that he will face as God's king, as the Christ. Peter's interpretation of it is, this can't be. this isn't good. Suffering of the Christ? Does Peter have in his mind that this might mean rejection? Would this mean loss? What good is a dead Savior? Notice Jesus' response. You are m- misunderstanding this, Peter. You are wrongly interpreting it. You do not have the mind of God, but the mind of Satan. The mind you your... You're, 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 your mind and your heart on the things of men. What, what does the suffering of Jesus mean? It's going to be other people as they encounter, and, uh, encounter the suffering that Jesus goes through, the suffering of God's King, and they also wrongly interpret and misunderstand it. Flip further over in Matthew's account of Jesus' life over into chapter 27. Listen to what Matthew tells us. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before Him. They stripped Him and put on a scarlet robe on Him and twisted a crown of thorns together. They put it on His head and put a reed in His right hand and kneeling before Him, they mocked Him and said, Hail, King of the Jews! They don't recognize Him as being the King. They're mocking and ridiculing Him because from their perspective, He is not the King. Even down further in verse 37. And over His head they put a charge against Him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with Him, one on the right hand and one on the left. And those who passed by Him derided Him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself... If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God? Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. See, from their perspective, Jesus has declared and made Himself King. They doubt His position as the chosen one of God. In fact, you hear uh, uh, an allusion to the words that David spoke in Psalm 3? There's no salvation for Him in God. Here on the mouths of the Pharisees and those who are mocking and ridiculing the suffering King Jesus, they say, will God save Him? And from their perspective, He won't. Because this is evidence that Jesus is making false and wrong claims. He has made Himself to be king. He is not the deliverer. He is not the Savior. He is not the Son of God. But notice what Jesus understands it. Further down in verse 46. At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Labah, Sabachthani. That is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Did the suffering of Jesus on the cross mean that he was rejected? On one hand, no. He was an innocent sufferer. He was not being rejected for his own sin. He did nothing wrong. But on the other hand, he is being rejected. He is being forsaken by God. Not for what He has done, but for the sin that we have committed. Jesus, the suffering King, is dying in our place. We must rightly understand. We must rightly interpret the suffering of the King because we will may find ourselves outside of the kingdom. If like Peter, you think there is no reason, no need for the Son of God to die, No reason for the king to suffer. That will result in our loss. Or, if you look at the the understanding of the Pharisees and the chief priests and the scribes who look at the suffering of Jesus and say this is evidence that he was not who he claimed to be, then we will find ourselves outside of God's kingdom because we will be in opposition to God's king and God himself. How do we know that? Look at how Matthew continues to go on in verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus on the cross. His suffering and rejection was due to our sin. But what was God's response he accepted and received the suffering of the perfect God-man on our behalf, and the curtain was torn in two. What kept sinful humanity from the righteous and holy God due to our sin, because the innocent sufferer died in our place, he was rejected for us. What does it mean but our acceptance? A pathway forward by faith and hope and trust in Jesus that we can be restored to God. If we misunderstand the suffering of God's King, we will find ourselves outside of the Kingdom. Because the only way that humanity can be brought in to the Kingdom, brought in, as Tim pointed us earlier this morning, into the family of God, is through rightly understanding the suffering of the King. In fact, as we flip again, like we said, this one story recounting to us God's great work of rescue and restoration through Jesus. Flip to the end of the story, to Revelation chapter 7. Beginning in verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God. Does that sound familiar? John is directing us back to Psalm 3, to David's interpretation of the suffering that he was going through and recognizing that this is God's work in the midst of it. And as John points us to the suffering King, who now is the Lamb on the throne, how do we understand it rightly? We look back to Psalm 3. The suffering King means that salvation belongs to our God and it belongs to the Lamb who is redeemed and saved and delivered His people. Notice as he goes on. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and the, around the elders and the four creatures and they fell on their face and before uh, the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are those clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. How have they been made clean? How have they been redeemed? How have they been saved? Through the suffering of the King, through His blood. You see, the suffering of the King did not mean rejection, it ultimately means our acceptance through the work that Jesus has done. Do we want to be brought into the family of God? Do we want to find our sins forgiven and our humanity restored before our God? to be found in His kingdom, to find ourselves not in opposition to God's King or God Himself, then we must look to the suffering King. We must give our allegiance and our heart and our life and our faith to the suffering King who died for us, the suffering King who rose for us, the suffering King who now rules and reigns and will return for us. See, the book of 2 Samuel, It's laying the groundwork and the framework for how we understand who Jesus is. The suffering of your King did not mean rejection. It is our salvation. Are you rightly understanding? Are you rightly interpreting the suffering of your King? You and I have no hope apart from Jesus' death on the cross for us and His resurrection on our behalf. May we be those who hear the proclamation of the good news in Second Samuel and reverberated throughout all the pages of Scripture that salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne as the suffering, risen King for God's people. Let's pray. God, we thank You for the the good news of the Gospel. We thank You for what Jesus has done on our behalf. We pray that You would continue to direct our our hearts, our minds, our understanding to see why Jesus needed to die. How desperate our situation was and how sufficient His death on the cross was for us. Point our hearts, point our minds, point our faith, point our lives to resting and trusting and hoping in Jesus, our suffering and victorious King. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.